And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And there's been a little bit of a, a spring chill in the air. Uh, it is April after all, and I am welcoming uh, somebody who needs no introduction, and that is Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Carl Erskine to the program to talk some April baseball. Carl, always welcome. Well, my pleasure here in Indiana, my home state, and uh, we have a nice day, and it's uh, baseball season. Uh, life is good. Life is good when baseball's around. Yeah, there, there's something that just feels so much more natural during this time. Um, and before we get into the thick of April baseball, I just want to uh, briefly talk about Jackie Robinson with you since Jackie Robinson Day just passed, and of course you weren't there in 1947, but you spent nine seasons with Jackie, and you know, just whenever the April 15th comes around, what's the first thing you think of, Carl? Well, we think of Jackie being number one in terms of color, uh, and then all the pressure that he was put under because of being the first uh, African American to play in the major leagues and uh jackie was a very intelligent person he not only uh, took the load of being a major league player which being the first black player he had to be good he had to prove that he belonged there that was a lot of pressure and we were all under one-year contracts in those days so we were they often asked me why didn't you buy a house in brooklyn when you played there 10 years (laughs) <laughs> on a one-year contract, it's not a smart idea to get a 30-year mortgage, but uh, that was uh, the way it was in those days. And Jackie, uh, he fit in. It, it, it wasn't like we got to get used to this because it's never happened before. It just seemed to me, uh, as you mentioned, I came up in 48 and then played nine, nine seasons with Jackie, but I wasn't there the, the, his rookie year which the New York writers voted him Rookie of the Year. And I thought that was an amazing move because uh, the general public had to get used to a black player on a white team. Uh, I played a lot of uh, semi-pro baseball in Indiana, and we played against black teams, but we never played with a mixed team, black and white. So this was a, this is culturally, this was, not just another day in baseball. Uh, this made a, a huge difference in how our uh, culture was going to be uh, uh, for going forward. But, you know, Jackie, most people never mentioned the fact that he was a very intelligent man. Uh, he'd gone to UCLA. I'm not sure that he graduated there. But in my years in baseball, it was rare to have a player who had been to college. We were all signed uh, when we were in the mid-teens, either in or just out of high school. So uh, that was one small exception with Jackie. He would actually spent a couple years at least at UCLA. But aside from that, uh, Rachel, his wife, was also very intelligent, and I think she she had a nurse's degree, and uh, she also taught at uh, Columbia uh, university at one time. So Jackie and and his wife and family were 
were very highly educated people and had a real class about them. So it, it wasn't Jackie uh, just another guy. He, he was an exceptional athlete, everybody knows. He was also very intelligent, and uh, I was privileged to play with him nine seasons, and it was quite an experience to be Jackie's friend. So when you first got there in 1948, was he all, he was already over uh, second base? Uh, Gil was coming up, right? Yeah, they they started with Jack. You know, Jackie in the in the Negro League was a shortstop, but all the scouts said uh, told Mister Ricky uh, he does not have the arm to play shortstop in the major leagues, and so that's why Jackie started at first base. Uh, eventually, that he was moved to second, but uh, and played he played there most of his career. Except toward late in his career, he played the outfield a little bit, left field, and that was just to get his bat in the lineup. And uh, so that was a strong team when we had Cox at third and Jackie was playing left field uh, to get his uh, bat in the lineup. But he could play. He could do anything. You didn't want to play Jackie ping pong, or golf, or mm-hmm. tennis. He beat you at all of them. I mean, he just he just was good at at, at athletic events, and uh, so we all recognized Jackie as just an exceptional athlete. And Duke Snyder lived in Compton, California, and he saw Jackie at UCLA. And Duke said, always told me, Jackie. Baseball was not his best sport. He could have been a pro football player, but he had heavy legs mm-hmm. and strong. Jackie was strong, but well, the opportunity, I, was, the opportunity was in baseball. I I think that perfect segue is to go to the days that you uh, pitched on opening day in your career, and we'll of course start with Brooklyn, and we'll we'll certainly. Uh, uh, go to the one time that you did in, in uh, Los Angeles. But looking at first, uh, April 17th, 1951, against the Philadelphia Phillies, unfortunately a loss 5-2 uh, to two to the Philadelphia Phillies. Jackie Robinson did go 2-4 for four that day with a run scored in two RBI in uh, your effort. Yeah, I remember the game. I, I, I remember I lost that opening day start, which was always disappointing, because uh, it's sort of an unwritten privilege to be the starting pitcher in in the season. It basically says the manager looks at you as a best-prepared pitcher out of spring training to pitch opening day. So it was really a, a badge of honor for the manager to pick you to pitch the opener. And, uh, so I did lose my first start uh, against Philly. Then later, uh, I remember beating the Pirates on opening day one year. I forget which year, but I think it might have been 55. That is correct. April 13, 1955, and um, also a two-for-four day uh, on uh, of Jackie Robinson, who started at third base that day. Yeah, right. Well, I think I got the win that day, 5-1, to one, I believe. I remember the uh, six, six to one, but yes. Six to one, yeah, okay. And it was rescheduled from the day before because of rain. You're right. We got that. <laughs> well, it was, it, it was truly a, a special day 
uh, on opening day. It was it was just like uh, baseball really came to life on opening day. Everybody, and you know, in my era, uh, special days like opening day, all-star game, uh, World Series, people dressed. I mean, women wore fur coats, fur jackets, and uh, men wore shirts and ties and hats. Hmm. It was it was kind of a, a Easter parade on opening day. And uh, so let, let's if we stick with uh, the 1955 game, your roommate Duke Snyder went three for three with two runs scored that day. Yeah, well, of course I roomed with Duke for 12 seasons, and uh, he <laughs> I used to kid him though. He gets so much, he hit 40 home runs a year, and. Uh, I said, Duke, I'll make you a ten dollar bet. Uh, I'll bet I'll hit, I'll at least hit one home run in my lifetime, and you'll never pitch a shutout. <laughs> <laughs> I won that game. I won that. I got one home run. Yeah. <laughs> there, exactly, exactly. You got one home run. That's perfect. Um, the other uh, opening day start for you was April thirteenth, nineteen fifty-four. The year before. And, oh, man, unfortunately, that was a hard luck loss to the Giants, 4-3. to three. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that game, too. But, uh, well, you know, I I had an edge on every team in the league. And, of course, it was eight-team league. So I had an edge on every other team, uh, seven, except the Giants. And I was uh, – I, I was – I was trying to think, 16 and 16, something like that, uh, over 12 seasons with the Giants. Uh, every other club in the league I had at least an edge on, but uh, I broke even with the Giants. And then, ironically, the other New York team was the Yankees, and I was 2-2 two and two in the World Series, so I broke even <laughs> with them. So, <laughs> anyway. Wow. That's, that is in- interesting. Uh, very ironic you broke even with both New York teams. Um in this uh, 1954 game, uh, two players that I'd like to focus on real quick. Um, first, the one who finished the game for you, Mr. Clem Levine. Well, Clem was a, a good starting pitcher. I always told him, because Clem on occasion would get a start, and he pitched some remarkable games uh, as a starter. But he said, I don't want to start. If I'm in the bullpen... I can come in almost every day. If I'm a starter, I know I'm only going to pitch every fourth day. In those days, it was every fourth day. And he didn't want that rotation. He wanted to. He said, I want to be ready. I can pitch two or three innings almost every day. And he did. He could do that. So he did not want to be a starter, although if you look up his record, there were some significant games uh, that Clem was started and pitched a remarkable game. One of them was a after the Larson no-hitter, uh, Clem pitched a one nothing 10-inning game in the World Series. Uh, very rare uh, for a pitcher to go uh, extra innings and, uh, and a shutout besides. It certainly is. And, and you know, it, it's that's the thing about baseball is that there's even to this day, you just keep seeing things that you uh, you don't think you've ever seen before. Like you have to rummage through the files in your brain to try to figure it out. That's what I love about the game. 
Um, the other person that I wanted to ask you about was Sal Magley, who uh, opposed you in 1954. Well, Magley was our nemesis uh, as a Dodger team because he was really tough on our right-handed hitting lineup. Uh, I think Duke was the only Duke Snyder was the only left-hander normally in the lineup, but uh, and we had a powerhouse of right-handed hitters with uh, Campanella and uh, Hodges, Ferrello. Uh, but Magley was lights out. I mean, I think he beat us 11 straight uh, till finally I got to win against him one night in uh, Evans Field. But he had, he had been dominant against us. And then I got a phone call one day, I think about 1956, and Buzzy Bavese, our general manager, said, uh, Carl, what would you think? I was player representative. He said, what would you think of uh, uh, us picking up uh, Magley? He, he was at Cleveland at that time. And I said, Magley on the Dodgers? He said, well, I've got a chance to get him. And, I, and he was older at that time. So I asked him one question, is he healthy? And he said, as far as we know, he's healthy. And I said, well, that guy's a real pro. I mean, <laughs> he was tough to beat. And uh, so we got him in 56. And surely he was a productive pitcher, uh, pitching no hitter that uh, in '56. So uh, Magley, when he walked in the clubhouse, it was kind of a question hanging in the air: how how are we going to receive this guy? He used to knock Frillo down often. Uh, he he threw it. Uh, he, he threw at Jackie some as well. Well, when Magley Italian. Magley walked in the Dodger clubhouse. Ferrella was the first one to greet him. He said, "Hello, Paisan," <laughs> which is <laughs> which is Italian for something, but I don't know what. <laughs> it, it is so interesting the dynamic that you know the foe becomes the friend. Uh, it, it's it's an interesting part of the narrative. Uh, well, before kinda, it was you know, I, I kind of developed a. Uh, appropriate term for that uh, is uh, we hated the enemy in a professional way. It was professional hatred, but personally, no, we didn't have that kind of feeling on the ball club about Magley. But we hated his guts because he beat us so often. But when he came in the clubhouse, he was greeted like a he should have been a real professional player. And, and we had a lot of respect for him. And I always admired him, the way he took charge of a game. When Magley was on the mound, there was no doubt who was controlling the ball game. And I liked that in him. I felt I needed more of that of myself. Huh. Well, that's, uh, you know, it, it's so interesting. The... You look at you really look at your own career as well as others from a 360 degree angle, and I think that you know you you're such a professional about everything you you've gone about that you also admit your faults. Well, they'll show up quick at the major league level uh, if you've got faults, particularly if a hitter has uh, trouble hitting a high fastball. Brother, he will get a diet of high fastballs around the league. And they used to kiddingly say, uh, 
that there was a pitchers' union. The pitchers uh, visiting different teams around the league always talked to the other pitchers. So the pitchers were always talking to each other, comparing how you pitch to various hitters. And I remember when Aaron came in the league, uh, the big buzz around with the pitchers was how do you get this guy out? And uh, I don't think we ever figured that out either. But <laughs> it, it was right. uh, it, it, we didn't have a pitchers' union, but it was kind of a uh, kind of a talked about idea that the pitchers all stuck together against everybody else in the league, and that, it had some truth to it because. We always uh, managed to talk to opposing pitchers, how you're pitching to to Kiner, how you're pitching to some of these good hitters. And so the word got around quick. If a guy had a weakness, uh, he got a steady diet of that. Yeah, it, it makes sense, you know, that the, the lines of communication would be open and you guys would help each other out one way or another because you were in this together, weirdly enough. Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, my question for you now is just having watched the Mets get swept in Wrigley Field, and some of those games were in 30-degree weather, uh, you know, somewhere in the 30s. Um, so what is that like for you? I'm sure you've pitched in plenty of, of weather that was not ideal. How would you adjust? How would you go, uh, go about your game? Did you like pitching in that weather? What, what are some of your thoughts about that? Well, I never mind the cool day. Now, a cold day is different. A cold day, the baseball seems harder and slicker uh, on a real I pitched a couple times. I remember in Pittsburgh, I pitched a game in the snow. Now, it didn't accumulate big, big time, but there were big snowflakes fluttering down to, right in the middle of the ball game. So uh, p- pitching in the cold was more difficult because uh, your grip on the ball was different. Your your hands were cold. Uh, we didn't have a warmer or any of that uh, thing to help. So pitching on, on a cold day was tough. And you were allowed to go to your mouth uh, if you were not on the mound, so to speak. Now, they kind of allowed a little bit of that, but you get a little bit of better grip if you got a little moisture I don't mean a spit ball, but just just the fingers a little damp would give you just a little bit more uh, grip on a slick baseball on a, on a cold day. But uh, it wasn't it wasn't so good pitching in, in really bad weather. But oftentimes April, uh, you had several cold days in April. And as I indicated, I pitched one day in Pittsburgh when it snowed the game. I remember. Uh, that little infielder, uh, Castiglio, and he was hitting at the plate, and the snowflakes were coming down, and he was brushing them away, uh, as though getting them out of the way for the pitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, it was one day that uh, it snowed pretty hard in the middle of a major league game. Well, it's an interesting combination of topics that we can go off on here. And and one, it has to do with the differences in uh, then versus now. Um, and, and there's one particular question that I'm going to ask you in a little bit about that. But here's, here's the segue. Um, 
you were talking about, you know, putting moisture on the ball just to have a better grip in the cold. Um, obviously, now you can lick your finger, but then you have to wipe it on your pants before you go to the uh, the ball. Right. So, you know, there, there's also a lot of speculation that there's there's a lot of pitchers out there uh, that put foreign substances on the ball and try to be slick about it, and that if if the other team were going to call anybody out, they'd be looking for scrutiny towards them. Um, and and just I'm actually you know taking a a soundbite from the sports radio that I heard recently on New York sports radio. But m- m- my question for you is. Uh, what is your opinion of that that foreign substance? And also, in terms of the rule change of having to wipe your finger after you apply moisture, um, does this? Do you think it's an appropriate? Uh, uh, do you think it's an appropriate rule that they implemented? What What, what are your opinions about all of, of those machinations of the current game? Well, I think I don't know how the wording goes exactly about uh, foreign substance uh, on a ball, but. Pitchers are often uh, acquainted with Thomas Edison. They're always experimenting with something. Now, there's been Vaseline used. Uh, there's been dirt used between the ball and the, and, uh, the fingers. Uh, pitchers try anything. And now, I, I, I don't think I was ever guilty of, of actually cheating, uh, but there was one thing that happened during my career that helped my helped my pitching grip, and that was pie tar. Uh, when you go to bat, uh, I know we used to watch Kiner, who had about 50 home runs a year, and he had a rag in the batting uh, on-deck circle, and we'd see this black-looking uh, piece of cloth, and he'd pick it up and put it down, and so we sent the bat boy over to steal it between innings to see what that rag was. Well, he was uh, our trainer said, let me smell that, Doc Winler. Doc Winler said, hmm, that's pine tar. You could buy that in the drugstore anytime. And so pine tar was introduced by Kiner uh, on the bat. So we started using pine tar. And then you go to bat, you get pine tar in your hand, or Hodges would come over from first base, and he'd have a lot of pine tar in his hand from hitting. He'd rub the baseball, and for a couple of pitches, the baseball had a little sticky spot on it. <laughs> you could throw a really good curveball with with a little touch of pine tar. But, <laughs> so. And that's one of the more vilified things going on in, in the game today. And, and it's interesting, you know, because like, like you, you, one of the things you bring up is, how if you're going to bat, pine tar is going to be on your hands just because there were no batting gloves then. And so they're there. And and plus they kept balls in play. Like now they're throwing balls out left and right, depending if there's dirt on them, you know, that just didn't happen back in the day. So you're talking about foreign substances that wasn't even necessarily because of the pitcher's control. Yeah, that's true. Well, it was in the game now. It was illegal to put any foreign substance uh, for a pitcher, to put any foreign substance on the ball. But I can recall Hodges, who had big hands, and he used lots of pine tar when he hit. Well, even in the defensive position, uh, Hodges uh, would rub the ball after an out. Uh, He'd rub it, bring it over, and hand it to you on the mound. 
and it'd be sticky with uh, all the pine tar that he had from being uh, at bat. And so, so I, I my curveball improved uh, substantially if uh, Hodges gave me a sticky, uh, sticky baseball. <laughs> So in a way, well, it was illegal in a way to put anything, uh, foreign substance, but I acquired it without actually going after it. Right. Well, I think it was was an Indiana double down, you could probably call it, right? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, Um, at at that level, you you try almost anything uh, to excel. And um, that pine tar was introduced... Uh, I don't know what year that would have been, but uh, uh, I think all pitchers, uh, in one way or another, benefited from uh, pine tar. Uh, I, I've never talked to other pitchers about that, but I know in my own case, if I go to bat, I'm, I'm allowed to use pine tar on, on the grip, and I always got plenty of it when I went to bat, but it wasn't for my batting so much as it was what I was going to have to my advantage the next inning. So, but anyway, right. a curveball oh, no, is pretty course. good with pine tar. No, of course. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it's such a fa- – it's so interesting uh, thinking about the differences between the two eras. So here's my next question, and this is, comes from somebody on Twitter named Big Red Ruckus, which is a Cornell University uh, alma mater. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's the, in, in this day and age, Carl, uh, uh, he's so anonymous. All we know him as is Big Red. I don't even know this guy's name, but he, he loves you, and he wanted me to ask you what you think about all these batters who wear the elbow guards. Well, I think it's a personal choice. and It's just like helmets. In my era, there were no such things as helmets. There was an insert, and it was a little fiberglass, would hardly turn away any kind of a pitch, but that was the only helmet. And then Mr. Ricky, when he was at Pittsburgh, uh, he came up with the hard hat, and it was not accepted right away uh, until a few guys got beaned and it just ricocheted off of that hard hat, and all the hitters finally said, wait a minute, I think, as funny as it looks, I think I'm going to wear that hard hat. So it the hard hat was introduced, I don't know, in the early, maybe mid-50s. Uh, before that, it was just a little insert inside a regular cap. And a fastball hitting you on the side of the head, uh, that was hardly any protection. But eventually then a molded uh, plastic hard hat came into vogue. And that's, uh, that's uh, they had to force teams to wear those hard hats they didn't like the hitters didn't like to wear them but after uh, i mean um what was his name tony canigulieri is it, am i getting that correct from the uh, red sox right. in the 60s yeah right i think so I think right. yeah you know just like i think after after time and, and what's crazy about it is that you have at least minimum two examples that i can bring up right now uh, regarding Pete Reeser and Dolph Camilli, who got completely crushed by fastballs and careers were never the same. You know, Pete especially just because of running into a lot of walls and, and, and everything that he did just full, full on out. But 
you'd think at that point, especially just even the one death in baseball history from a fastball to the head, you'd think people would understand regardless of, uh, of, of whether, I guess, it, it makes you in the moment you have to adjust to the visual. I guess that's what hitters are thinking. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, that you stand up there and let a missile uh, 95 to 100 mile an hour <laughs> go by. Uh, there is a high risk uh, in, in baseball in that sense. And, but the hard hat was not accepted uh, in, when it was first introduced. And I think Mr. Rickey, in the early 50s, came up with the idea of a hard hat. Uh, and it replaced the old, uh, very minimal protection that they used to use a little insert in the regular cap. Uh, it was not caught on fast, but after a few guys got got hit and it ricocheted off that hard hat, uh, it wasn't fast. It wasn't long until everybody wanted to hit with a hard hat, and uh, and it did save, I'm sure, a lot of injuries. And, and of course, it's used today. Plus, you ask about the guard, the elbow guard, uh, and there's a risk, and there's uh, various uh, kinds of protection, uh, particularly down around the ankle or the foot. Uh, there's a guard where a foul ball goes down, right. and that becomes really painful. And if, a, right. if, you, if you get injured, boy, that is a tender spot for a long time. A foul tip that goes down and hits your foot. So they, they've got a, a guard for that, and, and it's appropriate. So uh, Campanella used to say, baseball's got a knife. If a baseball hits you, it's going to cut you. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I, I mean, even I've gotten a, a, a softball fouled off my toe, and uh, it was black and blue for a few days. That is for sure. <laughs> so well, I, that's, um, a, that's a misnomer. <laughs> I, I've seen kids get hit right. with a softball. There's nothing soft about a softball. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, don't, I, I it it seems like it's just yet another um, patriarchy thing, but that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. Um, I'm going to bring on uh, somebody who actually uh, shouldn't be too far from you, uh, uh, and you. I believe you guys have actually met in uh, fantasy camp once upon a time, but. Uh, Mr. Super Dodgers fan himself, Rob Barnes. How you doing today? I'm very well, thanks, Sam. Good morning, Carl. Yeah, I'm up in the Chicago Hello, suburbs, it's... so I've got hi, Carl. Similar uh, weather to you. I just got some sad news this weekend. I wanted to pass. I'm sure you heard about the passing of Beth Snarder. I just wanted to pass along condolences from the entire Dodgers fantasy camp family on the loss of that wonderful lady. Maybe you could talk about her for a little bit. Well, Bev uh, and Duke were cl- very close friends. Uh, I room with Duke for, I think, at least 10 or 12 seasons. And our families grew up together. Uh, we shared a house in spring training. Uh, first, it was just uh, two couples. Then we each had a child. And now there was a baby. Now there was another. So we ended up with two kids apiece uh, renting a house in Vero Beach, Florida, during spring training. And, you know, the wives swapped nights uh, cooking the evening meal, and uh, we got along great. So uh, Duke was a good buddy, and Bev was just a sweetheart. She was she was a great baseball wife. 
she knew all about the stats of the players that she she was a Ted Williams fan. <laughs> that always bothered Duke a little bit. That's <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, that's, uh, yeah, uh, I want to reiterate what Rob said. Please, you know, pass our condolences on. It's, you know, it's unfortunately the way of life, but um, we're happy to uh, still be able to talk about it. Life is bittersweet, and and even in loss there is, like we just we just had a laugh about it, and and so you know it's it's been a trying time for everybody out there, uh, but you know just everybody needs to just keep on marching forward, and and the fates have in store whatever they do. So just uh, keep a keep a, a smile on that face, and keep watching some baseball. Uh, Rob, you know we're talking about April baseball, and I'm sure you, did you catch any of that Mets Cubs series? I most certainly did, especially the play at first base where Bryant missed first base and they didn't appeal it. That was just wrong. Oh well, and well, and they couldn't even appeal it because they had already given up their challenge, which is one of the things okay. I said was that if you're going to have all these rules, why like to get it right? How about you get it right? So I, I it's a whole other thing about the the replay. Um, yeah. I. I, I Carl, you watched a little bit of this series as well? Uh, we're breaking up a little bit. I can barely hear you. Well, I, I'm not a very good spectator. I I never was a good spectator. <laughs> if there was a game, I'd rather be playing than watching. But, um, yeah, uh, the, 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 uh, I lost my thought there a minute. But, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I watched a little baseball. uh as I said, I'm not a real good spectator, so I don't sit down and watch nine innings. But uh, I'm still interested in the game. I, I'm interested in how the game has held to some of the most basic fundamental skills uh, for ever since it's been uh, baseball's been played. Uh, and I think there's one thing that baseball doesn't emphasize enough is defense. There's so many fantastic defensive plays, and now they play the infields deep. They play out on the grass, and it's hard to hit a ball through the infield anymore. But uh, baseball has a lot of beautiful uh, plays to watch on defense. Now, I know the double play is always an acrobatic event uh, to see that. Uh, I think it takes. Uh, it only takes about three or four seconds to run run to first base. And to get a, a double play, that has to be quick. And that's a beautiful play to watch. I don't think baseball emphasizes the beautiful defense that's played every day, uh, not just great catches in the outfield, but the plays made on the infield that take really quick hands. So I like defense, and naturally as a pitcher I would. Right, of course, exactly. Uh, but I, here, weirdly enough, my question is about offense for you, and uh, I'm sure you've heard, I'm not sure if you saw any of it, but um, extra innings, they're starting with a runner on second. Uh, you know, and, and it's working. The games are going shorter. They're not going as many extra long innings as, as has been in the past. What is your opinion about that rule 
uh, which may or may not stick. Well, I'm a traditionalist, I guess, but I don't like tinkering with the plays of baseball. Uh, baseball is well over 100 years old, and professionally even, and uh, I, tweaking that with these uh, rules to make the game go faster and all that, uh, baseball has no clock. It's, uh, it's one of the few sports that doesn't have a clock, and I like it that way. Uh, baseball is you got to get 27 outs in a nine-inning game, and that's just been that way, and it's the way it should be. But uh, I don't like the timing of the pitcher and all that. Uh, baseball ought to be at the pace that that particular team, that particular, uh, you know, Preacher Rowe was one of my good buddies on the Dodgers, a left-handed pitcher, and he was very slow. And uh, Pee Wee at shortstop, he used to yell at Preacher, throw the ball, throw the ball. Uh, it, it takes away something from defense if a pitcher is very slow and, and keeps the infielders on edge. So there is a, a good catcher, like my catcher was Roy Campanella. He wouldn't let you be too fast or too slow. It's the way he returned the ball to you. So he could kind of control. A, a, a preacher was a real slow pitcher, and he would urge Preacher to pitch and get him urging him to speed up. But Preacher had a pace, and it was slower than usual. And part of it was psychological that he faked the hitter out. And a Preacher threw a spitball, which is, of course illegal, but uh, he had a good one. And he he would throw that only a few times a game, but the hitters all thought it was coming on every pitch. And it took forever for <laughs> preachers. It took forever to preacher to pitch the game because it, the hitter was always asking, "Look at the ball! Look at the ball!" And so the umpire. <laughs> so, so preacher he had all kind of uh, tricks that he used. They would call for the ball, call for the ball. So preacher would act like. Uh, yeah, he, he saw, oh, they caught me this time. Uh, he'd look at the ball before he threw it in to the umpire, and then he would <laughs> roll it in on the ground. <laughs> they'd say, oh, he had it. He had it. <laughs> so Preacher used it as a psychological pitch that worked better than the real thing. Rob, you know, it can't just be commercials. These games used to take two hours for a nine-inning game. Um, and you know, when you're thinking about the pitch clock uh, that Carl mentions, I, I really think that it's just up to the pitchers and it's up to the generations uh, that become coaches to be teaching them how to work effectively on the mound and as quickly as possible. I would think so. It has to be – well, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Isn't that the phrase? Kids grow up seeing this. You know, the kids in the pit. I watched the, the Dodgers last night. The young guy, Weathers, whose dad played for the Reds in the 90s. He grew up around major league clubhouses. He grew up watching pitchers tugging at everything before they threw a pitch, stepping off the mound, batters stepping out of the box, adjusting their, their batting gloves after every pitch. So I just think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where everything just kind of tumbleweeds down the hill and everybody uh, repeats what they've saw and everything just slows down. Carl, uh, speaking of tugging and, and, you know, 
doing, you know, bat tapping and all these different little things. Who is a batter that you remember that just like seemed to be lost in his own, I got to do this before I can even be prepared to swing? I can give you a good example. Harry the Hat Walker. Harry the Hat Walker was an outfielder. But he had this ritual at the plate, almost between every pitch. Uh, we see the batters now all step out and always readjust the batting glove. Well, he did that with his cap. He couldn't get it. He, every Between every pitch, he'd step out of the batter's box and he'd readjust his cap, readjust it two or three times between every pitch. And so they never called him for it or, or made a rule that prevented it. But he was the one example that superstition plays a big part in baseball. And I presume part of that was, or maybe all of it, was superstition for Harry the Hat Walker, he was known as. Uh, Dixie Walker's brother, actually. So that was one example uh, that now you see it often. The batting gloves takes up only a few seconds, but... Every hitter adjusted almost between every pitch. And so uh, there's never been a rule against it, but uh, that's one of the one of the things that uh, I guess slows the game down some. And, you know, one of the first that comes to mind, uh, and he, of course, played for the Dodgers as well as the Red Sox and the, and the Cubs, of course, uh, Rob, is no more Garcia Parra. Exactly. That's who immediately, I immediately thought of when I when that came into my into my brain. No more every pitch out. It just becomes like a, a a tick that he has to do. He and he's said it on interviews throughout the course of time. He just has to do that to calm himself down, to get himself just ready for the quote unquote battle that he's involved with. And that's just the way he was raised by watching other people and watching other people, and there we have it. There we have a three-and-a-half-hour, nine-inning baseball game. <laughs> exactly, plus what, having what to charms, hit all the commercials. Excuse me, I'm sorry. No, one go ahead, charm, Well, one of the charms of baseball is there's no clock. and There's no clock. And uh, so you play uh, uh, 27 outs, or uh, if it's extra inning, you go more. But uh, – the clock doesn't exist in baseball. So that's always been that way. And, you know, I don't like the gimmicks of trying to speed the game up. Uh, the game has a pace to it, usually set by the pitcher. Uh, but Preacher Rowe, I mentioned earlier, a left-handed pitcher for us, the Dodgers, he was very slow. And you know what that affects is the defense. The defense does not like a pitcher it is slow because they get set, they get set. And I can hear Pee Wee almost to this day yelling at Preacher, throw the ball, throw the ball. <laughs> and so a real slow pitcher can really affect the defense uh, in a negative way. Carl, we actually have a phone call for you from a 248 area code. Uh, area code excuse me. Go ahead. You are live on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hello, Carl. How are you? Hi there. Thank you for the call. Glad to hear from you. Oh, boy. Big fan, Carl. Long-time fan. I have a question for you about Johnny Padres. 
And after he after he won those two World Series games in 1955, I understand at the party he gave his room his hotel room key to was it O'Malley's daughter? Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just wondering. Yeah. I, just, I, 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 I think about that. I laughed so hard. He, was, he just turned 23, and he seemed like he was um, a sweet young guy. You know, he was just a, a kid with stars in his eyes. I just wanted to, to ask you about that. And also, the other question is after uh, he got Elston Howard to ground out in the, bot, you know, in, the t- in the bottom of the ninth in Game 7 in 1955 World Series, just the feeling you guys had at that moment, I and mean, you finally had done it. You know, I, I, I just, yeah, I just wanted to right. ask you now about that was those, Yankee they're magical Stadium. Moments. Oh, yeah. excuse me. That was in Yankee Stadium, and when uh, Padres threw an off-speed pitch to Elson Howard, he grounded out to Pee Wee, and that was that was the final out, and the final. finally we got a victory for our Brooklyn fans who had suffered through uh, years and years and years without a, a pennant winner, and that was it. But we got to clubhouse. Uh, in the, it, it was kind of a brief, very brief, uh, I don't know how many seconds or minutes, but there was not celebration immediately. There was almost a reverence in coming to the clubhouse. We, we finally got the, the victory in the World Series the first ever, and there was just a moment or so. Uh, Roger Craig was a rookie on that team, and some years later, Roger Craig said to me, Carl, I saw something in the clubhouse that day that nobody's ever talked about. After we finally won the World Series, Jackie had tears in his eyes. Pee Wee had tears in his eyes. You had tears in your eyes. Finally, to beat the Yankees and take the pivot and the championship home to the Brooklyn fans, it was emotional. It really was. So before the big celebration and for the uh, popping of the champagne, there was truly a uh, kind of a contagious feeling in there. We've got to honor this moment. No one said this. It just happened. But there was a moment in the clubhouse when it was a moment of reverence almost to finally have won the World Series. And that was, Roger Craig reminded me years later. He said, I saw tears in Jackie's eyes, Pee Wee's eyes, and your eyes after that win. So it was was pretty emotional. Hmm. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, what What is your name, sir, if you don't mind me asking? My name is Steve Padalum, and I'm calling you from Detroit, Michigan. It look at two four eight. I, I did some research. It looked like it. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah it's, Steve, it's about right? it's about twenty five minutes north of the city. Oh, ex- well, we thank you for calling. If you want to stick around, uh, we actually have a follow up question uh, from the uh, Brooklyn Trolley blogger Mike Lacolant, Carl. Uh, he was just wondering about the return to Brooklyn. From the Bronx. I didn't, I didn't get that. Oh, the return. Uh, he, uh, uh, the, oh, yes. The, okay. On, on the day you, uh, October 4th, 1955. Yeah, right. 
Well, actually, uh, the streets were lined uh, that day, uh, going back uh, to, to Brooklyn. Uh, so that was, I don't think anybody slept that night in Brooklyn. Maybe, maybe they didn't sleep for a week. In fact, at one time, it was rumored, at least, that there was a, a kind of a cult that grew out of that victory with the Yankees. And on the same date, I think it might have been October 4th. I'm not positive of the date. But October 4th. That on that date and at the actual by-the-clock time that there was a group in Brooklyn that was sort of a cult that met every year on that date and did a countdown on the clock till the actual minute that Pee Wee threw out Elston Howard to win the seventh game and and give the Brooklyn Dodgers the first and ever World Series. So that's that moment I've understood has been celebrated year after year after year by a group in Brooklyn uh, at the countdown, the very moment that Pee Wee threw out Elson Howard. That maybe have gone by by now, but it used to be in place. I think something that doesn't get talked about enough is the fact that Gil Hodges uh, uh, drove in both runs. Well, I think we knew that, and we also remember he took a lot of uh, criticism or comment about going 0 for 21 in a 52 series, I think it was, uh, which we lost in seven games. But, uh, yeah, that was a somewhat of a redemption for Gil. Steve, I was wondering if you have another question. I do. I do have another question. Um, this is kind of a, a speculative question, Carl. I always felt in my heart of hearts, and I've read all, I've tried to read everything I could get my hands on about you guys in Brooklyn and the teams that Branch Rickey built. And, you know, Branch was forced out in 1950, which I was really upset about in my, because I'm a big Branch Rickey fan. Uh, I think he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And I, I always thought that if Leo DeRocher and Branch Rickey would have remained with the Brooklyn Dodgers, I think you guys would have won at least two or three more World Series before 55. And I know this is big speculation, Carl, but I always wonder what you thought about that. I'm sure you might have had these thoughts at one time or another. I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, I would agree uh, in this uh, way. Branch Rickey had a marvelous uh, concept of how baseball should be played. And he introduced some uh, techniques of managing and playing the game that uh, uh, I think sustains to this day. Uh, He was a strong influence. Of course, he had the farm system concept of developing players, in which he himself admitted that my farm system, he said, is going to produce so many great players that they'll be coming, some of them will be coming back to beat me. And that's exactly what happened. He developed so many outstanding players, and many of them were sold and traded and were actually the opponents of Ricky teams. Now, Mr. Ricky signed me 
1946, and I was always, other than my father, I thought Mr. Rickey was the greatest influence on me as uh, a moral uh, uh, example, uh, a competitive example. Uh, I admired Mr. Rickey. In fact, you hear me say Mr. Rickey. The the guys that played under Mr. Rickey seldom ever say Branch Rickey. It's always Mr. Rickey. And uh, that was a a badge of honor for him because we did respect him and did appreciate. He had almost, I think without exception, one-on-one with his players. He wanted to meet, and he didn't say uh, anything about baseball. He says, what's your father's hobbies? Uh, what's, uh, do you like girls? <laughs> Mr. Ricky would grill you uh, and ask a lot of questions unrelated directly to baseball. But he wanted to know what made you who you are and uh, how you would react under pressure. He's a wise, he was a very wise man. He had a sign on his office wall, and I I used to read that, and I said, if I understand what that means, it said, uh, luck is a residue of design. Luck is a hmm. residue of design. In other words, the better you plan, the luckier you get. I thought that was a very, it took me a long time reading that. What does that really mean? And uh, it's, a, it's a profound thought that there is nothing mm-hmm. such as good luck. Good luck is a residue of design. Uh, I finally got the idea. Yeah. Robert, are you there? I'm here. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, if you can touch upon that, I mean, I think that's one of the, it is a very profound statement. And um, if, if there's anything else you want to follow up with. Okay. Having, uh, what about the coin flip in 1951 to determine home field advantage for the three game playoff? I've heard Great. different oh, stories uh, about that. Well, the question always was, why did Dresden, who, who won the flip, why did he ch- chose to play uh, two games away instead of playing them at home? It, 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 you know, if you look at the results, you, you kind of second-guess, well, why wouldn't he done it the other way around? Oh, well, that's kind of second-guessing. Nobody knows what in his mind, made him choose to uh, to play uh, two games in the polo grounds. But that's after you see the results. So uh, that was uh, nobody I ever read quoted Dresden as, as how he chose to do it that way. But because um, he had the choice uh, in a he had a choice of playing the first game in in Evans Field, and then if he, if he'd go three games, uh, it'd be back at the Polo Grounds. But uh, nobody I ever read 
had the quote of why Charlie chose to do it the way he did. But if you look at the results, you can kind of second-guess him and say, why did he do it that way? Yeah, second-guessing is so... Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, as they say, right? Exactly. Well, I think, you know, Lasorda, when he was managing, he says the guy in the stands gets two chances, but as a manager on the field, I only get one. <laughs> so, so it's pretty insightful uh, way to look at it. Yeah. You have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and we're so thankful that you do. And, Steve, first of all, if you can remind yeah. me of your last name again. Uh, Bedelman. Bedelman. Steve Bedelman, thank you again for calling. And my, my question for you is, you know, you you are – it seems like you can't get enough of the boys of summer, as they say. Um, are you from the New York area? No, but I, I spent a lot of time – I went to college in Boston – and um, and I spent a lot of time. I used to live in New York City, but I I grew up with baseball. My my brother, who's a, a played college baseball, had a big influence on me. I don't know if you guys remember. There used to be a a game, dice and cards, called APA Baseball, A P B A, and it was a game. It was an ingenious game, and you could pick any team from history. And, you know, you could have the 1927 New York Yankees, and they had all their proclivities who could hit right, you know, a left-handed pitching well. And you could play any team from history. And it was based on, on scientific research and, and stats. It was way ahead of its time. And as a little boy, I would go up with my brother. We'd play this game. And I was always the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1954. And, and uh, I just grew up knowing these names. And, you know, I, I, as a kid in Little League, I was a catcher, and I wanted to be like Roy Campanella, you know. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, Roy Campanella to me was my, my favorite catcher of all time. And uh, anyway, long story short, I just, then I started reading books, uh, Roger Kahn, The Boys of Summer. And, uh, and then, you know, I was, uh, you know, just, just the history of baseball. It's, it's Americana. It's everything that we're about here, the way we, are, you know, our, our parliamentary procedure, everything that we do, baseball is such a big part of it. And uh, I just loved that team. And, uh, you know, when I go to New York, I've been to the corner of, of you know, where, where the home, you know, at Ebbets Field, where the, where the apartments are now. I've touched that, that home base, you know. I mean, it put chills down my spine. It's the history of it all. And there's something that was so unique about the Dodgers. I mean, you know, just the whole thing with Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, uh, the relationship between the Brooklyn fans and the Dodgers. I mean, you know, I, I be, when I went to college, I, I really loved the, the Boston Red Sox. That's one of my favorite teams. And a lot of it has to do with what they've created, the feeling they've created in Fenway. And there's a rabidity between the fans. But I think it was even greater in Brooklyn. You know, there was such an intense relationship between the team. And I think baseball meant more in that borough than any place in the United States. So it's just a, it's a conglomeration of all the things Brooklyn and just the time and Branch Rickey's insight and the colorful characters like Carl and all the guys, Preacher Row. I mean, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a question for, for Carl 
we never talk about it, but what was Sandy Eremos like? You know, he made that amazing catch, and then he quickly threw the ball to double off Gil McDougal at first base in the seventh inning, uh, you know, in, uh, in game seven in 1955. What was Sandy Eremos like? Was uh, Anything well, he was a real mild-mannered kid. He didn't speak English. Uh, very difficult for him. And uh, so when he first joined us, uh, he had very little understanding of English, and he didn't speak it. So, uh, it, But he eventually uh, got got through that. But he was a quiet uh, player. He never popped off. And uh, the, it made Austin look like a genius because – he replaced uh, uh, Gilliam, I think it was, playing left field mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Amrose right. just the inning before <laughs> he had made that catch. A right a player wearing his glove on his left hand probably would not have been able to make that catch. Only Amrose with a glove on the right hand had to reach to, to make the catch. But it's doubtful that a player with a Love on the other hand could have made it, so it made Austin look like a genius uh, that he made that switch just before that play happened. But uh, that was that was a beautiful thing to see. Steve, it's well, interesting that you talk was, about. Uh, no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know, all the films that I've looked at, man, the ground that uh, that Sandy Aramos covered getting to the ball. I mean, he had to have been the fastest guy on the Dodgers. Well, Yogi hit the pitch, as I remember, uh, that, that he caught. Uh, well, he did. He was playing shaded towards center, so he did have a long way to run. Uh, the ball was high enough. It had enough hang time. Uh, and, again, being a glove on the right hand, made it possible for you to get the reach to get to the ball. A player on the glove on the left hand, it's doubtful, very doubtful, that he could have gotten there. Uh, he'd had to reach across his body, and it would have cut down on how far he could reach. So it's unlikely that a player throwing right-handed with a glove on the left would not have been able to make that catch. But... They, you know, he just he just was put in, replaced there. I think it seems to me like Gilliam was playing left field, and he replaced him that inning. And, and it was just like he was he sensed he needed this left-handed glove on this outfield uh, play. Uh, but it, it, anyway, it was a marvelous switch, and. Uh, it was one of the great catches in baseball. Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> I, I, have, Ed, I have you know. Another... No, no, please, by all means, go ahead. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to Mr. Erskine, Oisk as he's known. But it's so, so great to talk to you because you <laughs> you've been there, you did it, and uh, your credibility is unquestionable. It's just unbelievable. Um, I just have another question. I heard that in the 1951 one-game playoff, it was. Uh, I heard Newcomb was kind of tired, right, going into the to the ninth inning. I I've read somewhere and I can't remember where that he basically said, "I'm out of gas." 
I, I, I don't yeah. feel right going to and, – and I'm just wondering, if that was true, why did Dresden keep him in so early? Well, actually, Rowe and myself and Newcomb, we pitched down the stretch several times with short rest, trying to stem the tide that was uh, the Giants' uh, more remarkable finish. And uh, so all three of us had pitched uh, down the stretch with short rest, uh, two days' rest, start maybe and relieve in between. So that's how Newcomb, at that point, was showing that he was tired. Uh, he he given a lot over several games down the stretch. So it is true that he was, uh, I think, even expressed it. I wasn't on the mound to hear it, but uh, expressed it that he uh, that he's out of gas, and and that's why the, the change was made. And then I was in the bullpen along with Branca. Uh, we were both throwing. Clyde Sugarforth was a coach in the bullpen, and when the phone rang, it was Dresden calling to see if we were ready. And I could hear Sugarforth say, they're both ready. Then Dresden must have said, who's throwing the best? And the answer I could hear, it says, they're both okay. Erskine is bouncing his overhand curveball some. And Rube Walker was catching. Campy was hurt that day. And the distance between home plate and the backstop at the polo grounds was the longest in baseball. And Rube was not very quick on his feet. So somehow I think that played into the answer that Dresden made. Let me have Branca when he said Erskine's bouncing his curve. Uh, he didn't want any wild pitches in that big distance to the backstop at the polo grounds. And so I think that weighed into his, uh, nobody ever asked him that I heard, how did you pick Branca to come in uh, instead of Erskine, or what what made you pick Branca? I never heard an answer to that. But my assumption was that he didn't want any wild pitches uh, at that distance, and Rube Walker catching was very slow afoot, and so those Reasons are the only thing I can think of that he said, let me have Branca. And then Ralph went in, threw a strike to Thompson, and everybody jumped up on the bench and said, not there, Ralph. Thompson was a low fastball hitter, and the first pitch was a fastball low right down the gut. But Thompson took it. The next pitch was up and in. And Thompson himself said, I swung at a pitch that a good hitter would have never swung at. <laughs> it was up and in on his hands, but that's a, the pitch he hit, a circuit line drive in the lower deck of the polo grounds. That was a, the shot heard around the world. Yeah, wow. Branca was never the same after that. I was just and thinking about how it's also – you know, we now know that he, uh, the telescope was involved as well as the short porch. You can't forget that. Yeah, it was. He had a second line drive. Uh, well, Ralph was always philosophical about it. He said, "Well, even if he knew it was coming, he still had to hit it." And, and yeah, that's exactly. true. That is true. 
Uh, Frank had never alibied, but he was always suspicious, and he said so, that the Giants had to be cheating some way with the window in center field clubhouse. It was only up about six inches, but he he imagined or he got the vibes that the, somehow the Giants had to be cheating. And then, of course, we, none of us knew about the buzzer system and, and all the rest until it came out. Uh, Sal Evars, who was a backup catcher uh, in the Giants' bullpen, uh, told how they used the telescope and took the signals to the hitter. Uh, that came out 50 years after the fact. But uh, it was, uh, oddly enough, sign stealing in baseball is a part of the game. But there was no rule that said you couldn't do it with a telescope. <laughs> I don't know if they changed that. Sem- semantics. <laughs> semantics. <laughs> well, you know, it, in, a, in a way, if there was no rule against it, it I guess it was fair, fair to use it. But uh, ethically, you'd say, well, you know, ethically that was a wrong interpretation. You couldn't, you couldn't steal signs with a telescope. But uh, there was actually no baseball rule. And I'm not sure what the rules committee did about that. I've never really understood whether they... Now, there is a rule against sign stealing from the scoreboard in center field. Some of that which went on, I'm sure. The Cubs had a center field scoreboard. And it was the old-fashioned with a manually. You had to drop the number in the slot for the inning, and uh, it was straightaway center, perfect for a telescope to pick up the sides. But we never heard anything happen in Chicago. But oddly enough, uh, I still don't know if there's a rule that prevents or is to protect stealing signs with a telescope. Well, you know, like, you mean like, yeah, whether the actual writing was put into, you know, an amendment, if you will. Uh, Rob, you know, with the electronic stealing that happened recently, um, I I wonder what the exact wording is, you know, and especially considering that the the telescope, you know, even though people uh, speculated for years, it wasn't officially fact until maybe 20, 30 years ago. That sounds about right. Yeah. Well, the buzzer system, of course, took it a a notch higher than conventional baseball sign stealing. So even though there wasn't a – ethically it was wrong, but there was no rule. And I'm not sure to this day how the rule reads now if there is such a rule. I'm just not up on it. Well, we'll have to take a gander at the uh, the rule book before the next podcast. Um, Steve, real quick question: are, are you from Detroit originally? Yes. So I am. And this is you know you were talking Detroit about. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Um, I, I was just going to say that you were talking about what Brooklyn, like you could tell from all the way in Detroit what the team meant to Brooklyn. Uh, but what I want to speak to 
Carl, we're talking to two Dodger fans. Well, you know, it, it seems like you're a big baseball fan, Steve, but we're talking about two. You're, we're talking about two people from the Midwest who are extremely influenced by a northeastern team and the 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 team assembled that included you, Carl. Um, you know, you we do talk about the impact that the team had on Brooklyn uh, whenever we get to, uh, together. Um, but if you could talk about what it had, you know, the impact it had, it seems as if you either have Yankee fans around the country or Dodger fans around the country, Brooklyn fans around the country specifically. What has it meant uh, from an Americana perspective? You're asking me? Oh, no, sorry. Carl, go ahead. Okay. Well, if I follow the question uh, to give you an answer, uh, it seems that the Dodgers were kind of the orphan uh, orphan borough in Brooklyn. Uh, For years and years, they'd been in second division. And and then when Jackie joined the team, uh, and Mr. Ricky was rebuilding the team after World War II, that that team, which became the Boys of Summer uh, team, uh, suddenly became a dominant winner uh, consistently. And Jackie had to be a centerpiece of that, uh, bringing a spirit and, of course, his skills. And as they often say, a star player uh, lifts everybody around him to be better than they would have been otherwise. I think it was typical of Jackie. Uh, when he played, the spirit on that team uh, got up a notch or two. Uh, and instead of being just a whole hum team that won occasionally, the Dodgers became dominant with Jackie for the next 10 years and, of course, won the only World Series finally in Brooklyn in 55. But it was true that uh, a skilled player like Jackie lifted everybody around him, and, and, and also it gave confidence, uh, which was lacking somewhat, with Dodger teams, second division teams all the time. But I, I give Jackie a lot of credit for bringing beyond his own skills, lifting the skills of the people around him and making every game we played mean something instead of just being in second division and going through the motions. So he was immensely important to uh, the Dodger victories in the 50s. It's greatly important, and, and we appreciate everything you uh, you can say on the matter. Um, before we go, Steve, uh, first of all, thank you again for calling. If there's anything else oh, you want to touch upon before we leave. Yeah, I, I, you brought up Jackie Robinson, and uh, he's always been an amazing figure to me. But I have a, another question for Carl about Jackie. Outside of baseball, I, we know what a great baseball player was. And there was also, he was... To me, I see him as much greater than a baseball player. He was a—he had a vocation. He had a religious calling. You know, that quote that's on his tombstone, you know, your life is only as valuable as how it affects. I'm not saying exactly the quote, but how it affects the life of others. He was, he was really thinking of other people all the time. But my question for Carl is, outside of political activism and its philosophies and baseball, was there anything about Jackie that you found really kind of unique and cool? Like, for example, I knew he loved jazz music. 
would you guys as a team ever go into Manhattan to like all the famous jazz clubs in New York City? Like, you know, it could be, uh, you know, Birdland or, or the Village Vanguard, which is in the village. Was Did you guys ever go in and just hang out with Jackie to go hear jazz? Was that, was that something you guys used to do in New York? We did not. Uh, now, Jackie and uh, Rachel uh, were close friends besides teammates uh, with us. So we, we did a few things with Jackie. I did mostly with Jackie in schools. Uh, Jackie and I would go to schools to talk to the kids about uh, good morals and so forth. And even on the road, uh, we'd be asked to come and speak to a class at some school in St. Louis or Chicago and so forth. But I don't recall us ever. Uh, the restaurants would attract us more than the, the jazz uh, jazz bands. Uh, I never did that, and I'm not sure Jackie did. But uh, anyway, it was... It wasn't really convenient for us to do things socially together because uh, we lived in so far different. But Jackie lived in uh, uh, north of New York. In Connecticut, right. And uh, we lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh, so when we leave the ballpark, uh, we go uh, opposite directions. Uh, and uh, But anyway, uh, I did more things with Jackie uh in fact, there's a baseball program in Fort Wayne, Indiana, called Wildcat Baseball. It has about 4,000 kids in it every summer in the city parks in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Jackie and I were instrumental in helping get that started uh, through a sponsor named Dale McMillan, uh, who financed it. But that uh, Wildcat program having 4,000-plus kids is still active some 60 years later uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so Jackie and I did a few things like that uh, off the field, uh, making appearances in schools, uh, talking to the kids, and so forth. So uh, I was always uh, uh, felt good about the things Jackie and I got to do like that, besides being... Uh, teammates together. Beautiful. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Uh, Rob, is there anything else you want to talk, uh, touch on? Carl, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And if I'm making noise, I'm getting ready to take my dog to the bed. I'm sorry. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I look back fondly on my two weeks at Dodger camp, spending the time with both you and Duke and Clem was my manager for shortly before he passed as two of the most incredible weeks of my life to be able to walk in the shoes that you guys did at Vero Beach and to be able to experience that and hear all the stories that you guys would tell every night after all the day's festivities were over and just to hear you guys talk and share your knowledge with us. And part of that is what drove my passion to become such a fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Los Angeles Dodgers as well. Just hearing those experiences, I just want to thank you again for sharing your time with all of us and and your knowledge. And I hope everybody in your family is doing well, and Jimmy and Betty and everybody, and please pass along my best wishes to everybody. Well, it's kind of you to mention Jimmy because 
Jimmy's a Down syndrome young man. He's doing well. He's 61 years old now, not supposed to live past mid-30s. Uh, he was a great experience for Jimmy to come to Dodger camp, and all you guys were so kind and attentive to Jimmy, including him and everything. He ran the bases. He loved to do that. <laughs> so we have a lot of good memories of you campers and the experience that we had at the uh, at the fantasy camp. So thank you for what you contributed to. Oh, my pleasure, sir. My pleasure, sir. And, and Carl, to uh, reiterate the thanks going around, thank you again for always giving us some time on the air. We appreciate you and we appreciate the entire Erskine family. So thank you for all of your memories and thank you for sharing it with us. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I've been blessed, the man, uh, to have a family and and to have a career with the Dodgers. It's been uh, a true fantasy land for me. And thank you all out there for listening. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, so thanks for tuning in week after week. Thank you, Steve, from Detroit. Uh, we greatly appreciate you calling in. And thank you from Rob in Illinois. We greatly appreciate, as always, you calling in. You bet. My pleasure. I've appreciated, uh, appreciated to excuse me. I've appreciated the call and speaking with some of the fans. Thanks for doing that. Of course. Thank you, Carl. And thanks to everybody out there. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.